Well, real resources are subject so obvious, it's ridiculous I even have to say this. However, mainstream economics for years had many central models that were not consistent with the laws of physics. <laughs> Any economic activity that is physical material activity, which is basically all, must, I mean, you can't violate the laws of uh, nature, you know, the laws of physics, the geochemical laws, biophysical laws, and so on. Um, but money as accounting information is not subject to the laws of physics. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is part six of what was originally supposed to be a five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matt Forstatter. Matt first resolves the cliffhanger from the end of episode five, which was caused by an unfortunate technical error. We were discussing the purpose of MMT and how it is sometimes misunderstood. As Matt told me at the start of today's episode, quote, the purpose of MMT is not to be a complete theory of capitalism but rather to correct some crucially important mistakes that have very important and practical policy implications." Close quote. Specifically, MMT is an accurate description of the financial system at the heart of modern capitalist economies. It has three, and only three, policy prescriptions as implied by that description. A floating exchange rate, a federal jobs guarantee, and a permanently near-zero central bank target rate. In other words, MMT is deliberately limited in its scope, which is sometimes twisted to portray MMT as not enough. What MMT actually says is that many things desperately needed by millions can be safely provided right now, and in fact, can always have been provided. There is no need for the issuer to obtain the money from anyone or anything in advance in order to do so. This is because the issuer has no choice but to spend by issuing new money. This reality is misinterpreted, for example, in some popular Marxist critiques, as if MMT enables or even promotes terrible things like imperialism or inequality. MMT shows that we don't need to reduce the belligerent military or reduce inequality in advance of doing these things. What these critics miss 
is that reducing the military and inequality is a good thing to do for its own sake, not because we need their money in order to pay for those things. The military must be made less belligerent because we reject belligerence as a moral stance. We must reduce inequality partially by taxing the rich because we reject inequality as a moral stance and also because that money is being used to kill our society and the long-term existence of our species, at least as far as most of us here in the 99% are concerned. Conversely, the limited scope of MMT is positive in the sense that it allows those things it leaves unaddressed up to interpretation without compromising its core findings. For example, MMT allows for Islamic economics as discussed in episodes 56 and 57 with Assad Zaman. It allows for the Marxist worker revolution as discussed in episodes 58 and 59 with Jim Kavanaugh. As Matt and I discuss in today's episode, MMT allows, encourages, and even requires personal feelings, instinct, intuition, and even imagination and dreams. To quote Matt, MMT builds bridges between economics and other interdisciplinary fields. Mainstream allows for none of these things, and in fact, discriminates viciously against anyone who dares even consider them. This is the only way it can preserve its dominance, since clearly it can't win on the arguments. In the second half of today's episode, Matt and I discuss the connection between economics and the second law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that the total energy in an isolated or closed system, such as the universe, is constant or fixed. Energy can transition from one form to another, but it can't be created or destroyed. The second law states that any utilization of matter and energy permanently decreases the amount available and accessible to that same system. This is called, or leads towards, entropy. To bring this back to economics, the idea that the so-called free market, which is another example of a closed system, can survive without injections of new money from the currency issuer is just as nonsensical, if perhaps in different timescales, as the idea that a television can continue to function when it's no longer plugged in. It might last for a few seconds, but soon enough, it no longer works. Major corporations needing federal bailouts every decade or so is all the evidence that's needed to prove this. They don't just require periodic bailouts either. They require outsized influence over our media and educational institutions and all three branches of our government. Without the ability to push all real and financial costs onto their workers and society in general, they would need much more than a massive bailout every decade or so in order to survive. Most importantly, regarding the economy and as I understand it, the second law of thermodynamics seems to fully hold from the point of view of the non-government sector. However, from the point of view of the currency issuer, it doesn't hold. The first law states that the amount of energy is fixed, but energy and matter are physical things and therefore subject to the laws of physics. From the issuer's point of view, 
Money is not physical. It's merely numbers in accounting ledgers or, essentially, tally marks. Tally marks are a concept, not a physical thing. As long as humans exist, their capacity to create and destroy their own money is limited not by physics, but their imaginations. Therefore, to not provide the money desperately needed by millions and to provide it to those who need it the least is not for lack of finance, but imagination and morals. And now, back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, you know, we had some pretty serious <laughs> technical issues. It was been a few months now, so uh, we're just we ended. Uh, it was abruptly ended and uh, quite a cliffhanger. So I'd just like to close that out, and then I'm, I'd like to ask you one final question. Uh, it's pretty much unrelated, but I think that you'll have some interesting things to say about it. And uh, do you need a review of what the topic was that that cut off, or do you do you think you could just go? What what would you prefer? So one of the things that I was saying is that if we evaluate uh, a book or an article or whatever, a theory, uh, based on a different idea of what purpose is, then we might sort of mis-evaluate that Booker's theory. And I gave, as an example, drop this production of commodities by commodities. Right. Because this is a book of less than 100 pages. There's a, a lot of equations and so on. And Dropper's style is there's no wasted words or throwaway sentences in uh, Srafa, it's often uh, remarked. Uh, So maybe if people were thinking that uh, Srafa was trying to accomplish in production of commodities a task similar to what Marx was trying to do in Capital, right? A comprehensive theory of capitalism. Uh, that is not what Strafa is trying to do. Uh, Strafa is addressing a particular specific problem in economic theory, both in terms of uh, the its neoclassical uh, presentation the marginal productivity theory, and so on. And then also to demonstrate that there is an alternative theory of value to both neoclassical and the labor theory of value, uh, which says, you know, classical political economy, classical theory of a value, but kind of similar at the beginning of Ricardo's principles, he says, 
you know, I just want to address a few issues in Adam Smith's theory of value and distribution that um, I believe could be modified and improved. But uh, as for other topics that Smith covers in The Wealth of Nations, it's just an exhaustive, you know, project uh, in terms of economic theory, then Ricardo says, all those topics that I'm not commenting on, it's because I agree with Adam Smith. So basically, Hmm. you know, rather than criticize Ricardo for not doing this, that, and the other thing, it was meant to be sort of read in tandem with uh, Adam Smith. And so I think you could say sort of something similar with uh, Srafa and Marx's uh, capital. So, you know, I often would hear um, American post-Keynesians like Paul Davidson criticize Srafa's book as saying that, oh, well, not a a comprehensive uh, depiction of capitalism. You know, it doesn't doesn't deal with money or uh, you know this, that, and the other thing. And um, well, that wasn't the the purpose of Rafa's book. So they're they're yeah. saying they're saying I don't like it because it doesn't go far enough. Well, everybody is not writing a magisterial grand magnum opus or whatever that's supposed to cover every single aspect. Like Anwar Sheikh has a book, The Capitalism Crisis and something. I mean, that really covers it. it, it I mean, there's nothing exa- truly exhaustive or comprehensive, but yeah, it becomes clear to anyone who, you know, really took the time, uh, just like, you know, you see all these people criticizing MMT who've never read anything. It, it happens with people like Strafa and others. Nowadays, I mean, mainstream economists don't know who Strafa is, really. They never heard of the capital of Cambridge theory debates and the, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a mess. I mean, when I went to, did I uh, mention previously that uh, Randy Ray and I were invited to Robert Mundell's villa in Italy and, you know, Mundell of the optimal currency area, Nobel Prize winning, you know, He's the epitome of, like, mentalism. And both Randy and myself uh, presented on mentalism, more or less. Uh, and he loved it. And he published it. He published both of our uh, papers from the conference in as chapters in a book he edited of the conference papers. This was for the 70th anniversary of Keynes' general theory. And so uh, it was 
if the workshop was in Mundell's, you know, study or whatever. And so it was his, you know, personal library was there, and he had James's collected works and so much uh, philosophy and history. I mean, he and the other mainstreamers of, you know, the good, quote-unquote, uh, neoclassical economists from, uh, you know, early 1960s or whatever, with all the the problems, believe me, but relatively speaking, I have found that even within neoclassical economics in the post-World War II era, it has become increasingly narrow, increasingly formalistic, increasingly dogmatic, ideological, uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's quite possible that um, the PhD economists from the top schools are not suited to teach at a liberal arts college. I hmm. mean, they couldn't teach a first-year interdisciplinary seminar. I, obviously, I'm speaking very generally, but deans who you interview with, no matter what department you're from, they all come from some department, and you know, it might be anthropology, it might be you know, history, or ecology, whatever it is, and graduates of the heterodox programs could have uh, a you know, high-level discussion about the philosophy of science or, or methodological issues in social science. And so, um, you know, if you came out of a heterodox program, you could discuss Kuhn's uh, structure of scientific revolutions and Lakatos and Paul Feyerabend and uh, against method and the sort of history and philosophy of science and social science. I mean, there's uh, quite a number of people from mainstream programs that um, they, you know, they've been described as sort of idiot savants. Um, <laughs> and the, the ironic thing is, you know, people who who really know about things like econometrics and all this kind of uh, stuff, they argue that the neoclassical statistical methods are deeply flawed. So, um, Deirdre McCloskey, formerly Donald McCloskey, and Stephen Zilliak have, have written about this, you know, huge... <laughs> They argue proportion of neoclassical economics articles that use uh, statistics are actually flawed. The method you know, statistically is flawed. Well, so you, you said case, you said yeah. the deans that that that, Pete, that heterodox interview. Obviously, those deans are approved by the donors of those schools because those schools are funded primarily by the donors. Well, no, no, no. I mean, 
No, I, I'm not saying that you said that. I'm just saying that that, that the reason that those that's deans... not really... Deans are not important enough. A president is different. And you have alumni and donors and board of trustees and all that. Deans, you know, I mean, of course they're vitally important, but I'm saying from the perspective of, you know, donors or whatever, that's not really... But Okay. So... The last point on this that I wanted to make is that often it is, I think, misunderstood. That MMT is criticized uh, for this or that or the other thing because you can immediately understand that the critic is treating MMT as though it is putting itself forward as a complete and comprehensive theory of of capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that's the case. I believe that MMT has some extremely important areas of focus and so on, but that we don't have to completely reinvent the wheel, right? Uh, because a lot of fantastic work has been done in different heterodox traditions, and these can be blended together over time with MMT so that if you want to understand, you know, our economy, you have to understand something about, you know, technological change. Uh, it's very important in our economy. Now, you know, maybe NMT's focus is uh, more on demand and uh, money and finance and financial stability and so on and so forth. And, and of course, this is what it's all been about in, in over the last, you know, 25 years is make, building bridges between other not just in heterodox economics, but also, as you mentioned, interdisciplinary work that right. is so vitally important. So uh, that would be my, that we should understand the purpose of MMT is not to put forward a complete area of capitalism in every respect, but rather to correct some crucially important mistakes that have uh, very important uh, practical policy implications. Uh, and so I think it's uh, important that MMT economists themselves remind their audience of this uh, every so often. That makes perfect sense. And uh, uh, Assad, uh, have, are you familiar with Assad Zaman? I guess not. The name again? Assad Zaman. He's a Pakistani PhD economist. Mm, I don't think so, no. Okay, okay. I, I interviewed him, uh, well, it was released uh, about a month ago. I interviewed him quite a while ago. It was probably soon after we talked. Uh, and right. it's 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 really fascinating. He he was a mainstream economist for thirty years, and he he was and he then he real then he discovered MMT, 
well, not just not just MMT, but MMT was a huge part of it. And then he realized that his entire career, 30 years, was a complete sham. And in fact, he discovered yeah. it soon after he spent 10 years writing an, an advanced, highly advanced textbook on econometrics that's still used all around the world right now. And he freely admits is completely flawed, completely flawed. And what he said was uh, he studies uh, Islamic economics. And, oh, right, he, right, and right. he brought up, and we were talking about how, you know, mainstream economics makes Islamic economics impossible. And even in, I've had conversations with Marxists as well, where they say that mainstream economics makes, basically makes revolution, their, their version, you know, of revolution yeah. impossible. But MMT does not make it impossible. It makes Islamic economics possible. It makes the Marxist revolution possible. And as I was saying before we recorded, it makes just your own personal opinions and thoughts and feelings not just possible, but it encourages them, which is, you know, it, it, it forces you to think of things other than economics and then think outside of the box of how those things affect economics. So, right. I, yeah. Yeah. So, um, good. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, if, I'm, if I may, I'm going to ask, one unrelated question that I think you will have some valuable input to, and then we will um, say goodbye. Um, okay. So that question is, I am fascinated by the concept. Uh, someone brought it up, and actually I'll say it's, his Twitter handle is View From Mars. That's, that's been, you know, they have the, you're, you're, Ma you're yeah. Matty Bram. That's your yeah. Twitter handle, but your name is obviously... Uh, Matt, Matt yeah. Forstatter. So his name, right. not the handle, but the name is View from Mars. I want to give him credit because right. he, he right. is who taught me this. He told me about the, how the second law of thermodynamics connects to economics and MMT. And, and the point is the second law of thermodynamics states that the energy of a closed system can only be less than the energy it is fed by an external system. So it, all things lead to entropy. All things lead to, you know, dying. <laughs> dying. Right. Uh, so, this, so this leads to the free market. You know, like we, the earth wouldn't survive if we didn't have energy from the sun. I mean, I think that's, you know, so the, we, the earth is a closed system that has less energy than the sun gives to it but we would not survive unless we continually got that energy from the sun. And the same thing is true with a television set. The television set works fine as long as it has energy from an external power source. As soon as you unplug it, you know, maybe it'll work for a few seconds and then it'll, it'll, it's done. And the same thing is true with the free market, the so-called free market, the market. The market cannot exist without injections of money from the federal government. And, leakages happen through taxation. Leakages uh, just means that it's not being spent. So either through taxation or saving, it's leaked out of the economy. So, be so it requires injections from an external source, which is the issuer and secondarily banks, but mostly the issuer. So, so I want to ask you just what your thoughts are on it in general, because I know that you, you mentioned that you probably, you have some papers that relate to this directly, but, I also want to ask, um, what, what do you recommend for someone that wants to learn more about this? I want to learn more about this. And I feel like this is an interdisciplinary thing where someone who needs 
the only person that I could learn it from or whatever, the person I'm imagining is that someone who understands science or I guess physics or whatever it is, thermodynamics, and economics and proper economics. You know, free market opponents say that they don't, you know, imply that they don't need any injections. They're fine. They don't need the government. And it's like a sick, it's like a power strip plugged into itself. It's like an extension cord that's just plugged into itself. It's a joke. It's just a complete joke. It's, you know, I don't, I don't, I know that there was a lot there, but um, can you say your thoughts on that subject? Right. Yeah. So I, I want to um, suggest an alternative definition or way of expressing the definition that I use with uh, my students in my undergraduate um, an environmental economics course. And that would be any utilization of matter and energy decreases the total amount of available or accessible matter and energy. Now, it might be useful to briefly state the first law as well, which is that the total amount of, of um, energy in the universe is, is fixed. But then you get to the, the second law and any use of matter and energy decreases the total amount of available or accessible matter and energy. So, so the total amount of energy in the universe is fixed, but the total amount of available or accessible energy is decreasing. That's entropy. Because, like, just to give a very mundane example, so let's, I don't know what they make automobile tires or truck tires from these days, but let's just say it's rubber. So you have a truck going across the country back and forth, delivering and picking up goods or whatever, and the tires are constantly involved in friction against the asphalt or the road and generating heat and that heat dissipating into the air and then over time the tread is wearing down. When the tread on a tire wears down, I mean there's actual matter which is wearing down, right? And uh, but total amount of matter in the universe is fixed. Total amount of accessible, available. So where are these little tiny, you know, um, so small you can't even see them, specks of rubber that used to be part of the tire now that the tread is worn down? Well, they're in the little cracks in the asphalt you know, like along the way, and then some 
have changed. So uh, I, I I didn't tell the full definition of uh, the first law. It's, it's that uh, the total amount of uh, matter and energy in the universe is fixed. And, well, I guess I could say it, right? The, the second and first combined. So, in the 1960s, there was a very prominent, previously mainstream, more or less, economist, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan. He wrote a book in the 60s called Entropy and the Economic Process. And uh, then perhaps his most famous student, Herman Daly, actually became more well-known than his teacher, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, and Daly is one of the founders of ecological economics, which was uh, created by an interdisciplinary group of scholars, policymakers, uh, activists, and so on and so forth, because of their dissatisfaction with mainstream environmental economics based on neoclassical economics. So uh, the second law is absolutely central to much of ecological economics. I'm not an expert on the science, as is probably already clear uh, to the listeners. And I, I mention or use the idea in my articles, but my articles would not be a place to go to, to you know, learn about it. I mean... Um, but it would give you a good idea of the connection to economics, though. I mean, there are these... Uh, Australian economist Phil Lawn. Oh yeah. And, uh, yeah, he actually. I was drawing on his work before NMD. I mean, I was teaching, you know, ecolo- I was incorporating ecological economics, which has only been around since like the 1980s or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case. Yeah, my sort of larger environmental uh, sustainability policy program, which is made up of a number of policies that complement one another, you know, green jobs, uh, job guarantees is one of them, but also uh, combining functional finance and ecological tax reform. Uh, which just refers to a number of different tax subsidies, quotas, and other policies for quote-unquote market-oriented policies to try to promote sustainability, and then a number of other uh, a number of other things. But uh, yeah, I mean, I derive from sustainability rules. So these would be rules that economies have to 
uh, obey in order to be environmentally sustainable. And um, I don't know, there's like five of them in in the piece that was in the Journal Post Keynesian Economics, 2000-ish, I think it was, public employment and environmental sustainability, something like that. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I go through that, and and I I think uh, there's a couple uh, chapters of Nicholas Georgescu Rogan and then also Herman Daly and others. Now, I should say, there are some very lively debates about appropriate use of the second law and also different versions of the laws of thermodynamics. We can't get into that all here, but just to let people know that, you know, there are uh, reasonable people who have different, uh, you know, different views on on this stuff. But I, I guess what I would want to caution people about is that, you know, we often in MMT emphasize the distinction between real resources, right, versus money as accounting information. Well, real resources are subject, so obvious, it's ridiculous I even have to say this. However, mainstream economics for years had many central models that were not consistent with the laws of physics. (laughs) Any economic activity that is physical material activity, which is basically all, must, I mean, you can't violate the laws of uh, nature, you know, the laws of physics, the geochemical laws, biophysical laws, and so on. Um, But money as accounting information is not subject to the laws of physics. This was, Mm. there was a uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist named Frederick Soddy, S-O-D-D-Y, and Herman Daly has an article about him, uh, but Soddy, Sort of did this exercise back in 1930, but he he argued that the national debt or debt in general was going to uh, be a problem for uh, sustainability, uh, what we now call sustainability, because while Compound interest just keeps on increasing, you know, uh, endlessly the size of the debt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, real resources are undergoing entropy. So there's mm-hmm. no end, so not all, um, and by the way, I should say, when I, I for I don't know how many years, the Minsky Summer School at the Levy Institute, 
at Bard College has been going on. But uh, basically, I think I missed one uh, last year, the year before. But other than that, I've been to every one. And I always do the environmental presentation, and I I talk about exactly what we're talking about here in that presentation. I have a a PowerPoint I can share it with you or whatever. Uh, but and also you can view it I think uh, somewhere the the presentation. But the point is that uh, just in case any you know purists might think that I'm I don't know committing some kind of uh, heresy. Uh, Randy Ray has sort of referred to this specific point uh, that ecological economics and MMT both emphasize the crucial distinction between real resources subject to the laws of physics versus money as accounting information. A a human concept. Yeah, a human-created concept. Human-created concepts right. are not subject to the law of physics. It's subject to your imagination. Right. Exactly. So, I just, yeah, I mean, so I'm not sure about the leakages and injections. Well, leakages and injections are, are simply analogous to energy. It's the energy into a system. Money is energy right. to the system. Analogous, but anyway, I, I have to think about it, but I, I, I would just... You know, sometimes, like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, worked at the Santa Fe Institute on path dependence and positive feedbacks in the economy. And, you know, classical supply and demand theory is all about you know, negative feedbacks. And equilibrium, right, is dominated by negative feedbacks. But, you know, the understanding that positive feedbacks are very important in the economy is one thing, but it would not be correct to say that all phenomena are characterized by positive facts and there are no examples in the real world of negative feedbacks. No, there are both positive and negative feedbacks, and the point is to try to, so I would say it might be similar, right, you know, with the thermodynamics, and you don't want to be applying them where it's not appropriate. That's actually very interesting, because the energy in economics is a concept. It's not actual physical stuff. It's not actual energy. That's actually that's actually a really interesting point. Um, but I still think it's it, it's at least very analogous, if not totally accurate. Uh, okay. I mean, we've been going. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to say regarding that? No. This, I mean, everything. You know, I think it's enough to touch on it, and then you know we can put a uh, citation in the notes. That that would be that would be great. Um, okay, uh, we've been going for a while. I, I'd like to just say a couple of observations. I don't think you should respond to them because this is basically turning out to be just another episode. Um, yeah. So so don't worry about responding to these. I just want to say a few observations based on what based on what you just said. 
Um, okay. The amount of energy, the amount of matter in, in in the universe is fixed. The amount of energy in the universe is fixed. I believe that's the first law of thermodynamics. But the amount of energy available once it's released, to, like once it's used, the amount of energy decreases. So number one, that implies that eventually there will be no more energy. And number well, two, yeah. And number two is it's also interesting, and I don't know how this fits in, and it's obviously a huge subject, so I don't think we should discuss it, but it's also true that matter is essentially, at its essence, just another form of energy. That was it, just those two things. Well, I want to say one thing, and that is uh, please support Jeff and his work, and I really feel like he's... uh, and many others as well, but you are doing a lot. I really want uh, everybody to uh, support activist MMT and, and your other projects. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I really appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Um, uh, okay, if there is uh, anything else that you wanted to say uh, before we closed out, um, that certainly Just, put, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for talking. It's been really uh, enlightening and just listening to you tell your stories has been, uh, uh honestly very unexpected, but, uh, a really nice uh, surprise. Um, this has been pretty fascinating, honestly. Uh, sure. you know, <laughs> I, it really, it's been, it's been really enjoyable talking with you and, uh, uh, oh, actually, uh, just just to share just to share something random. Um, my son actually just uh, been saving up for a few months, and uh, uh, he paid for two thirds. We bought him uh, a guitar for the last day of Hanukkah. He paid for two thirds of it. Nice. With his so, nice. uh, you know, he's 11 years old, and you know, whatever. But but uh, yeah. it's a real guitar. It's it's an acoustic electric guitar, and uh, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Ah. So. No. Okay. All right. Go. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. See you later. Take care. Bye. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
Today is part six of what was originally supposed to be a five-part conversation with one of MMT's original developers, Matt Forstadter. Matt first resolves the cliffhanger from the end of episode five, which was caused by an unfortunate technical error. We were discussing the purpose of MMT and how it is sometimes misunderstood. As Matt told me at the start of today's episode, quote, the purpose of MMT is not to be a complete theory of capitalism, but rather to correct some crucially important mistakes that have very important and practical policy implications. Close quote. Specifically, MMT is an accurate description of the financial system at the heart of modern capitalist economies. It has three and only three policy prescriptions as implied by that description. A floating exchange rate, a federal jobs guarantee, and a permanently near-zero central bank target rate. In other words, MMT is deliberately limited in its scope, which is sometimes twisted to portray MMT as not enough. What MMT actually says is that many things desperately needed by millions can be safely provided right now, and, in fact, can always have been provided. There is no need for the issuer to obtain the money from anyone or anything in advance in order to do so. This is because the issuer has no choice but to spend by issuing new money. This reality is misinterpreted, for example, in some popular Marxist critiques, as if MMT enables or even promotes terrible things like imperialism or inequality. MMT shows that we don't need to reduce the belligerent military or reduce inequality in advance of doing these things. What these critics miss is that reducing the military and inequality is a good thing to do for its own sake, not because we need their money in order to pay for those things. The military must be made less belligerent because we reject belligerence as a moral stance. We must reduce inequality partially by taxing the rich because we reject inequality as a moral stance and also because that money is being used to kill our society and the long-term existence of our species, at least as far as most of us here in the 99% are concerned. Conversely, the limited scope of MMT is positive in the sense that it allows those things it leaves unaddressed up to interpretation without compromising its core findings. For example, MMT allows for Islamic economics as discussed in episodes 56 and 57 with Assad Zaman. It allows for the Marxist worker revolution, as discussed in episodes 58 and 59 with Jim Kavanaugh. As Matt and I discuss in today's episode, MMT allows, encourages, and even requires personal feelings, instinct, intuition, and even imagination and dreams. To quote Matt, MMT builds bridges between economics and other interdisciplinary fields. Mainstream allows for none of these things, and in fact, discriminates viciously against anyone who dares even consider them. This is the only way it can preserve its dominance, since clearly it can't win on the arguments. In the second half of today's episode... Matt and I discussed the connection between economics and the second law of thermodynamics. 
The first law of thermodynamics states that the total energy in an isolated or closed system, such as the universe, is constant or fixed. Energy can transition from one form to another, but it can't be created or destroyed. The second law states that any utilization of matter and energy permanently decreases the amount available and accessible to that same system. This is called, or leads towards, entropy. To bring this back to economics, the idea that the so-called free market, which is another example of a closed system, can survive without injections of new money from the currency issuer is just as nonsensical, if perhaps in different timescales, as the idea that a television can continue to function when it's no longer plugged in. It might last for a few seconds, but soon enough, it no longer works. Major corporations needing federal bailouts every decade or so is all the evidence that's needed to prove this. They don't just require periodic bailouts either. They require outsized influence over our media and educational institutions and all three branches of our government. Without the ability to push all real and financial costs onto their workers and society in general, they would need much more than a massive bailout every decade or so in order to survive. Most importantly, regarding the economy and as I understand it, the second law of thermodynamics seems to fully hold from the point of view of the non-government sector. However, from the point of view of the currency issuer, it doesn't hold. The first law states that the amount of energy is fixed. But energy and matter are physical things and therefore subject to the laws of physics. From the issuer's point of view, money is not physical. It's merely numbers in accounting ledgers or, essentially, tally marks. Tally marks are a concept, not a physical thing. As long as humans exist, their capacity to create and destroy their own money is limited not by physics, but their imaginations. Therefore, to not provide the money desperately needed by millions, and to provide it to those who need it the least, is not for lack of finance, but imagination and morals. And now, back to my conversation with Matt Forstatter. <laughs> 